Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on a shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, NHK World Radio Japan, France 24, and Radio Havana Cuba. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Germany produces a weekly video series called Business Beyond, Going Behind the Headlines. This week, the topic was Making a Killing, Who Profits from the Global Arms Trade? They discuss how much of the global export of weapons is about profit rather than national security. The invasion of Ukraine has stimulated a windfall for arms manufacturers. The United States produces 37% of all weapons sold in the world. Corporations make profit and the countries of origin must approve the sales. One-fifth of the world's children are living in active armed conflict, including in Yemen, which is being attacked by Saudi Arabia, which gets 80% of its weaponry from the U.S. 110 states have signed the International Arms Trade Treaty. Neither the U.S. nor Russia have signed it. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. A global marketplace of weapons. Export of arms is a multi-billion dollar business unlike any other. Can large defense contractors sway <clears throat> what the military buys, even though at times that's not necessarily what they want or need? Absolutely. It can be argued that trading weapons is essential for countries' security in a dangerous and uncertain world. But commercial motivations can influence controversial arms sales. I think it's quite clear that in many cases the economic reasons uh, are very important and are the, the final kind of reason why states continue with certain arms exports. One fifth of the world's children right now are living in places of active armed conflict. As war rages in Ukraine, the country's urgent need for weapons is undeniable. But is the global arms trade as it currently operates making the world safer or more dangerous. So what exactly do we mean by the global arms trade? Governments spend a fortune on defence. Just under $2 trillion was spent globally in 2020. However, not all countries make their own weapons and military technology. They either buy from other countries or are granted weapons in the form of military aid. Combined, these deals are known as arms transfers. When we talk about the arms trade, we often refer to countries rather than companies. That's because while many privately run companies make weapons, the sector is tightly controlled and regulated by governments. When companies sell arms, they usually don't give them away. They sell them with a permit to license from their respective governments. 
Um, that is true in basically all countries in the world. So in that sense, all arms trade, all arms transferred are governed by the state. The companies cannot act uh, alone in that regard. If they do so, then normally that is against the law. But that's not to say that the sector isn't lucrative for the companies at the top. In 2020, the top 100 arms producing and military services companies recorded combined sales of $531 billion. That includes domestic sales within the country of origin. But much of the sector's sales are via arms transfers to other countries. CIPRI, that's short for Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, which does extensive research in this area, says the value of the global arms trade was at least $118 billion in 2019. But it cautions that figure is likely to be a big underestimate. Several large countries, for example China, don't publish financial data on total arms exports or licenses. In the global arms trade, a handful of countries dominate the export market. Between 2016 and 2020, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, that's the USA, Russia, France, China and the UK, exported almost 80% of all weapons sold around the world, along with Germany. But one country towers above all the others when it comes to the export of weapons and military technology, the USA. In the five years from 2016 to 2020, the USA accounted for 37% of all arms exports. Little surprise then that the top five arms producing companies in the world by sales are all American. Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman and General Dynamics. And in 2022, business is strong. A consistent criticism of the arms trade and the defence sector in general is that it profits too much from conflict. Meaning there may be a financial incentive to go to war beyond foreign policy or security considerations. The idea goes back a while. Over 60 years ago, in his farewell address as US President, Dwight Eisenhower talked about something called the military-industrial complex. He was referring to the relationship between the US military and the vast defence industry, and the risk of misplaced power falling upon that industry. Does the influence of defence companies lead to the production of more weapons and therefore more conflict around the world? It's certainly part of the problem. In many cases, these are deals that are being brokered by governments uh, for industries that are being supplemented in various ways because of their manufacturing sector uh, by those very same governments and that governments both directly and indirectly profit from in terms of job creation, taxation uh, and various other things. That's Samantha Nutt. Through her work with the humanitarian organisation Warchild, she has campaigned for changes to how the arms trade functions. For example, calling for more transparency around weapons transfers and more humanitarian spending to counter its effects. There is this sense that, that there are financial gains that are being made uh, at the expense of civilian well-being. And the lack of transparency around that is one of the biggest impediments to both holding those companies accountable, but also holding our own governments accountable. We approached a number of US and European defence companies, but none were available for interview. We've already seen which countries export the most weapons around the world. But to understand more about the motivations behind those sales, we need to see where they go. The top 10 account for just over 50% of all foreign arms sales in that period. 
around a quarter went to three countries, Saudi Arabia, India and Egypt. Over the past few years, Saudi Arabia has caught up with India to become one of the world's biggest import markets for weapons. The USA has supplied almost 80% of Saudi weapons imports in that time. Weapons sales to Saudi Arabia surged under both the Obama and Trump presidencies. But arms sales to Saudi Arabia have been hugely controversial because of the Saudi-led intervention against Houthi rebels in the ongoing Yemeni civil war. The UN says that by the end of 2021, 377,000 people had died in the Yemeni civil war, with around 150,000 of those civilians. The majority died from hunger and disease caused by the humanitarian disaster, while around 15,000 have died as a result of military action, many in airstrikes by the Saudi-led coalition. I think that the Yemen is one of, certainly one of the starkest examples because we have evidence that weapons that were shipped to the UAE and to Saudi Arabia have been used in that conflict. Um, so I think that that has, it has certainly, I, I think, exposed the scale of the problem. It is not possible, according to many analysts, to defeat the Houthis, the rebels in Yemen, and therefore the Saudi war will not lead to peace. Even worse, over the past six years or so, it has only led to a, or it has only contributed to a humanitarian catastrophe. So that has been a very important reason for the focus on arms exports to Saudi Arabia and calls to constrain, restrict, or even stop that. The US is not alone in supplying the Saudis. The UK and France are the country's number two and three suppliers respectively. But pressure over the humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen has seen several European countries, such as Sweden, the Netherlands and Germany, drastically cut back on arms exports to Saudi Arabia. Anti-war and humanitarian campaigners often focus on the role the arms trade plays in fomenting and prolonging conflict arguing that weapons originally sold for ostensibly legitimate purposes of defence or security will inevitably end up serving other ends. All you have to do is look at the evidence, right? The evidence does not back up the claim that those arms are primarily being used by lawful militaries and for things like police enforcement. It, even if you just look at small arms, the one billion that are the legal small arms, small arms that we know about in circulation in the world uh, every year, 85% of those are in the hands of civilians. Then there's the risk of weapons sold in the arms trade being used to engage in war crimes, human rights abuse or terrorism. There are some agreed controls in the global arms trade aimed at preventing certain abuses. Just for example, when there is a United Nations arms embargo, when the United Nations Security Council has decided that a certain country or a certain armed group should not receive arms, then that is international law. So you cannot supply weapons to Libya. You cannot supply weapons to groups in Somalia, etc., etc. There is also the Arms Trade Treaty. That's a multilateral treaty that regulates the international trade in conventional weapons. 110 states have ratified it, although neither Russia nor the USA have done so. The EU also has rules and criteria it expects member states to adhere to before selling arms. However, experts say many of these measures aren't strong enough to deter national governments. 
Humanitarian organisations calling for change in the arms trade say one of the biggest challenges is convincing governments to spend less on its militaries and more on the kind of humanitarian aid which can, in the longer term, end cycles of violence in war-torn countries. That's the great hypocrisy. The countries that most benefit from the persistence of, of armed violence in the world are also the least likely to be engaged financially in trying to find peaceful, sustainable solutions through um, the eradication of poverty, through a reduction in global income inequality, and through things like humanitarian assistance. As we speak, a devastating war is raging in Ukraine. If Russia's invasion has made the world a more dangerous place overnight, does that simply mean that the global sale of arms will grow and grow? Defence spending in Europe has been on the rise for a while now. Since Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, NATO's European members have been spending more and more on defence each year. However, what we're seeing now is an acceleration or deepening of this trend because many countries are saying they're going to invest like even more than they had planned. So it's going to grow, but even like in a, at a faster pace than it had started before, before the start of the war. The war in Ukraine is sort of like, you know, uh, deepening or strengthening the trend that was already there. So does that automatically mean more profits for the defence sector? That is what the commercial industry will do. The uh, pharmaceutical industry has most likely benefited from COVID. There's nothing really wrong with that, but it is extremely important, as you already hinted at, to be able to control the industry. It should not be the industry that determines which decisions that are being taken about what should be acquired that's all from this edition of Business Beyond. For more from us, check out our playlist. Why not start with our recent video on sanctions and whether or not they really work? That excerpted report was from a program on Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle called Business Beyond, which may be found at DW.com and on YouTube in the DW News Channel. On to NHK World Radio Japan. The U.S. remains committed to the Indo-Pacific region even as attention is focused on Ukraine. The U.S. has approved a potential deal to sell Patriot missile equipment to Taiwan, including training and support. China is outraged. Australia, Britain, and the U.S. are teaming up to develop hypersonic weapons. The head of the Japanese Fisheries Federation has reiterated firm opposition to the plan to dump treated but still radioactive water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. NHK Japan a senior White House official who oversees Asia policy says Washington remains committed to the Indo-Pacific region even as attention is focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Kurt Campbell made the remarks on Tuesday. He serves as coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs on the National Security Council. He emphasized President Joe Biden has said America's strongest commitment in the 21st century will be to the Indo-Pacific. Campbell added there will be no change to the policy, even though commitment to Europe is now needed. With China's growing presence in mind, he said the U.S. and its allies in Asia should strengthen cooperation in technology, trade, security, and diplomacy. The United States has approved a potential deal to sell equipment related to the Patriot Air Defense System to Taiwan. 
The proposed deal is worth $95 million. It includes training, support and equipment to operate the system, which is used to intercept cruise missiles and aircraft. The announcement comes amid tensions in the region. Taiwan's defense ministry says more than 250 Chinese military aircraft have entered its air defense identification zone in the past few months. The number is double the same period last year. American defense officials say the sale will strengthen Taiwan's security and help maintain political stability in the region. Observers say the United States is becoming increasingly wary of China, which has refused to condemn Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Officials in Beijing have blasted the U.S. move. This arms sale will seriously harm China-U.S. relations as well as peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. China firmly opposes the decision. The foreign ministry spokesperson said China will take what he called resolute measures to protect its sovereignty and security interests. Australia, Britain and the United States say they're teaming up to develop hypersonic weapons. The announcement comes amid fears Russia and China possess such weapons. The reason we invest in all of these things is to create a peaceful environment and a stable environment in our region, not one driven by conflict. The leaders of the three countries issued a statement saying they'll cooperate on the development of the weapons and systems to defend against them. Hypersonic weapons can travel at five times the speed of sound. That's too fast for current missile defense systems to intercept. Russia says it's used that type of missile in Ukraine. North Korea claims it test-fired a hypersonic missile in January. Last year, Australia, Britain and the United States formed a trilateral security pact known as AUKUS. The partnership is helping Australia build nuclear-powered submarines. The three countries also plan to collaborate on cyber capabilities. The head of the Japanese Fisheries Federation has reiterated its firm opposition to government plans to release treated water from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant into the ocean. Reactors at the plant suffered meltdowns after the March 2011 earthquake and tsunami. Water used to cool molten nuclear fuel there is combined with groundwater and rainwater. The water is treated to remove most of the radioactive materials, but the filtered water still contains tritium. The treated water will be discharged into the ocean after being diluted to below government safety standards starting in spring 2023. Industry Minister Hagiuda Koichi met the president of the National Federation of Fisheries Cooperative Associations, Kishi Hiroshi, on Tuesday in Tokyo. Hagiuda said the government will set up a fund to offset possible reputational damage after the water is discharged. He also pledged long-term support to ensure fishers can continue to operate without any concerns. Some countries are still restricting Japanese seafood imports. We're asking the government to do more to address the issue of reputational damage. Kishi said the plan to release treated water has not won the understanding of the public and fishermen across the nation. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 7355 and 6165 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp.
All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. Next, France 24. A press review on how not everyone outside of Europe is supporting the Ukrainians. Then an update on the third IPCC climate report, saying that there are less than three years to stop the rise in global CO2 emissions. France 24. Time now for the press review with Aaron Ogunkeig. Uh Turning to the war in Ukraine next, uh, you found a piece about how a Kiev may not be winning the communication war outside of Europe. Yeah, Delano, independent French outlet Mediapart uh, published a piece on how significant portions of the population across the African continent uh, are voicing support for Moscow. It's what some diplomats and international relations experts uh, call the African exception. Now, those experts say that the reasons are uh, military ties with Russia, reliance on, on Russia for some products like weapons or even mm. grains. Mediapart says that the reasons are more complex than that. And they've spoken to political parties in several African countries, Benin, the Ivory Coast, and South Africa. And what they gathered from those from those conversations is that some are arguing that Russia has the right to counter Western expansion. Uh, many see NATO or other Western involvement in African countries, for example, as essentially a modern continuation of Western imperialism. Some of them quoted in the piece say, Russia never colonized Africa, so why, why are they the ones that we should be demonizing and not trusting? Uh, it's it's true that some of them also simply believe Russian propaganda points, which is that these images are, are falsified, what we're seeing is not true, the West is not covering what's really happening in Russia, they're just looking to demonize to demonize Moscow, and that really resonates with a portion of the population in, in African countries. Uh, the last thing I'll say on that, Delano, is that um, the media part notes that deputies from Marine Le Pen's party, or even former fringe presidential candidate Francois Asselineau, uh, are invited often to African countries to analyze this conflict, where they repeat some of these same mm. Moscow talking points. Last thing I'll say, Delano, actually, is that this all comes as uh, French uh, officials have accused the Russian-linked paramilitary group Wagner, along with the Malian military, of committing abuses and killing civilians in an anti-terror operation in, uh, in Mali in late March. It's now or never to save the planet. According to the third and final section of a climate report published Monday by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, humanity has less than three years to stop the rise of global CO2 emissions that warm Earth, and less than a decade to cut them almost in half. Measures hit us underwater, unprecedented heat waves, terrifying storms, widespread water shortages, the extinction of a million species of plants and animals. And this is not fiction or exaggeration. It is what science tells us will result from our current energy policies. The Secretary-General also criticised world leaders for failing to stick to their promises to bring world temperatures down, calling previous climate summits a file of shame. The UN body also gave guidance on what the world can and must do to stave off the worst for the future. Firstly, keeping the rise in temperatures at or under 1.5 degrees Celsius this century, requiring a massive effort by businesses, governments and industries to make severe changes. If the Earth is to stay within 1.5 degrees Celsius, they found coal must be effectively phased out and methane emissions reduced by a third and higher investment towards a low-carbon shift. Limiting temperatures also means carbon emissions must peak by 2025 and fall rapidly after that to give the planet a chance. This year, not next year, this week, not next week, today, not tomorrow. And that would really be the message. We need to get on with this now or 1.5 degrees will slip beyond reach. 
Each IPCC report takes thousands of scientists and about seven years to compile, meaning this could be, in effect, a final warning. That report and press review were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com. They also have a YouTube channel called France 24 English. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show which I freely distribute to radio stations and the internet like listeners in Boulder, Colorado and Santa Cruz, California did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba. Peru imposed a curfew as workers and citizens protested rising fuel and food costs and extreme inflation. The Taliban announced a total ban on the production of opium. Radio Havana, Cuba. Because other transport workers took to the streets again on Monday in Lima, as well as several regions in the north from the coastal city of Piura to the densely forested Amazonas. Earlier, Prime Minister Anibal Torres, in an interview with the state-owned outlet TV Peru, said that the mandatory lockdown could also be put in place in the interior of the country if unrest did not stop. Like much of the rest of the world, Peru's economy is still recovering from the damages wrought by the coronavirus pandemic. The country's consumer price index in March saw its highest monthly increase in 26 years, driven by soaring food, transport and education prices, according to the National Statistics Institute. The multi-region demonstration was largely organized by the Union of Multimodal Transport Guilds of Peru. To appease them, the government eliminated the fuel tax over the weekend, and Castillo decreed a 10% increase in the monthly minimum wage, which would rise to $277 beginning in May. But the General Confederation of Peruvian Workers, the country's main trade union confederation, rejected the wage hike, stating it was insufficient and called on its affiliates to march on Thursday. The Taliban has announced a ban on the cultivation of narcotics in Afghanistan, the world's biggest opium producer. According to an order from the Taliban's supreme leader, Ibatula Akhunzada, announced at a news conference by the Ministry of the Interior in Kabul on Sunday, quote, As per the decree of the supreme leader of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, all Afghans are informed that from now on, cultivation of poppies has been strictly prohibited across the country. If anyone violates the decree, the crop will be destroyed immediately, and the violator will be treated according to the Sharia law. The order said the production, use or transportation of other narcotics was also banned. Drug control has been one major demand of the international community of the Taliban, which took over the country in August and is seeking formal international recognition in order to wind back sanctions that are severely hampering banking, business and development. Afghanistan's opium production, which the United Nations estimated was worth $1.4 billion at its height in 2017, has increased in recent months. Farmers and Taliban members told Reuters news agency. The country's dire economic situation has prompted residents of the southeastern provinces to grow the illicit crop that could bring them faster and higher returns than legal crops such as wheat. Taliban sources told Reuters they were anticipating tough resistance from some elements within the group against the ban, and there had been a surge in the number of farmers cultivating it in recent months. 
Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though the podcasts are not updated. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 6 p.m. to 11 at either 6,000, 6060, or 6100. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.